0: This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford HealthCare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Round, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you for our first show of 2023. And, um, as you know, every year, um, We all sit down and we start putting together resolutions and what we're going to do in the coming year. And number one on that list is always weight loss. And that's what prompted me to really start thinking about, is it weight loss or is it just proper nutrition and trying to find a way to better health and living longer? And that's why my guest today is going to be Dr. Charles Cavill. Uh, Dr. Cavo is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Pounds Transformation. He's a medical doctor, and he's been on a mission, for lack of a better term, of preventive medicine and, and looking at metabolic medicine to really work with people who not only struggle with weight, but struggle with their metabolism, meaning the people who are pre-diabetic, right? or prone to being diabetic and and want to avoid becoming diabetic. People with elevated lipids. So how do we get around that uh, with diet, exercise, and medication? Uh, He was last on our program in June of 2021. So we really want to get an update on his mission. So we're going to chat with him in the second half of today's program. And uh, I guess one of the things that's really been dominating the The cycle, the news cycle now, has been COVID-19. Our numbers have risen dramatically here in Connecticut. Uh, We're now at a rate of 17.4%. Last week, it was 13.22%. And it's also elevated in eight counties now here in Connecticut. So we're seeing more um, from the uh, counties uh, here. Uh, and, uh, it's really covered most of, uh, Connecticut. Uh, when we look at the map, uh, really, um, Hartford is among those, uh, that are high Litchfield, Middlesex, New Haven, Tolland, and Wyndham all have high rates of disease. Only New London and Fairfield are in the moderate range. Uh, what is that telling us? So. It's telling us something that we've talked about on this program, and I believe most listeners to this program participate in, and that is putting a mask on when you're indoors. Trying to avoid places where you're really crowded in with people. And, and not just for COVID-19, for the flu and things such as that, but right now, um, the COVID-19 variant, the xbb 15 variant of Omicron, um, accounts for 80% of the cases. And which each of these variants, what we want to look at is really what's going on with these new cases. So in these 80% of new cases from XBB15, uh, we want to learn as, as much as we can. And what we do know is that it's primarily an upper respiratory type of picture. So people developing, coughing, sneezing, sore throat. In healthy people, the symptoms are relatively mild, especially if you've been vaccinated. The scary part of that is uh, here in the United States, only about one third of people over the age of 65 have gotten the latest COVID-19 booster. And we know that the vaccine is effective with this variant. What I define as being effective is it keeps you out of the hospital and, more importantly, keeps you from dying. So that's how we look at the effectiveness, not have I gotten it anyway. Now, most of the people I know who have gotten it recently, I think we all know people who have gotten it recently, uh, have had relatively mild symptoms and all of those people have been vaccinated. We really worry in the vulnerable populations, not only those over the age of 65, but those who have ongoing respiratory problems. But 89% has been the number of increased hospitalizations in Connecticut just since Thanksgiving. So we're trending in the wrong direction. And now, uh, fortunately, some municipalities have gone to recommending masks be worn indoors. Everybody's afraid of the word mandate. Everybody's afraid of rules. Yet we did pretty well when we had some rules in place. Uh, So people are out there going to sporting events and restaurants and shows right next to each other. And there's this temptation that even if you're not feeling well You really want to get to the show. You really want to get to the family gathering. Maybe it won't be so bad. Uh, I'll try to wear a mask. That's not it. Stay home if you're feeling ill. Don't get others sick. The other problem with this is internationally. So globally, we're suffering from vaccine fatigue to a large degree. You remember when the first vaccines came out, there was this thing, this argument that only rich people were getting the vaccine right because rich nations were buying four times the amount of vaccine compared to lower income countries and and one country that was particularly vocal about this was in South Africa where the president I mean less than two years ago he really called out wealthy nations um, for buying uh, so much vaccine. But really what this has resulted in, only about a third of South Africa's population is now fully vaccinated against the coronavirus, according to their own government figures. And their daily vaccination numbers have plummeted to the point where millions of doses have had to be thrown away. That's the same thing here. We're throwing away the thing that keeps people out of the hospital and keeps them healthy. It's a bizarre thought, but that's what's going on right now, and we really need to um, get a hold of this. I mean, there's a lot of impact here. I mean, the overall impact, when you think about it, is, all right, I have mild symptoms. I got to stay out of work for five or ten days, okay? That's a big loss to our workforce, right? There are fewer people out there defending us. Right. It affects our fighting force. It affects policemen, firemen. It affects healthcare workers, nurses. So when they're out, we're at a reduced capacity. So we have to really keep in mind that this is something we do for our entire community. And I know I keep repeating this in some way, shape or form. And in some respects, I'm preaching to the choir. But I think that all of you who listen and and believe in this and, and understand the science really become advocates. You talk about it with your friends. You bring it up. Hey, we're going back to wearing masks. When you start wearing a mask and people see that, they start doing it as well, saying, well, maybe they know something. Maybe I should be wearing a mask as well. So it's time for us to all become leaders in our own right. Uh, this week in medicine, uh, January 6th, so this was yesterday, uh, and in 1714, Dr. Percival Pott was born. And he's an English surgeon, and uh, he. interesting how his name came about. In 1756, he fell from his horse, fractured his ankle, and then uh, in 1769, he published a description of the fracture that he suffered in the lower part of his fibula, so out of his ankle, and where that malleolus is and where your ankle forms, and the fact that he had this displacement of his foot that became known as a POTS fracture. He also really described the deformities in the spine during tuberculous spondylitis. So tuberculosis tuberculosis spondylitis is really when someone has tuberculosis and it attacks the vertebrae, those big bones in our spine, and causes degeneration and curvature of the spine. And again, bears his name, Pott's disease. The other thing he did way back in the 1700s is he really got into industrial medicine. He discovered an occupational cancer in chimney sweeps. So here he is in England where they had these chimney sweeps. And he was the one who first documented a cancer uh, in those. And, And it was really his understanding of medicine and public health to some degree, really, in looking at industrial medicine that paved the way for so many people today. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back. We're going to talk about some other things we've been seeing in the news these days, uh, lacanamab has been approved, Something we, a drug we've talked about for Alzheimer's disease. And we're going to talk about the medica- the medicine and the implementations on the football field that were evident last Monday. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's more.
1: When the world seems to shine, like you've had too much wine.
0: And uh, maybe it's time we didn't have as much pizza in this new year. And we're going to talk about that in the second half of uh, today's program uh, when my guest comes on, Dr. Charles Cavo from Pound's Transformation. Um, so, one of the things we all witnessed, rarely get to see, with 23 million people watching, is a problem where suddenly a well-trained and fit athlete has heart failure and it's it's a rare occurrence is what happened now we're familiar with people who've had heart disease and suddenly they develop an arrhythmia but in the case here of what we call commotio cordis or agitation of the heart is what affected Demar Hamlin and basically he tackled another player and was hit in the chest and at that point he got up and then fell to the ground and his heart had stopped now it's relatively rare in the sense that there are fewer than 200 cases reported since 1995 but it is the fear of all ringside and sideline physicians You have to understand, there are only two ways of dying in sports, cardiac and neurologic, right? Someone who has devastating brain injury. We spend a lot of time focused on brain injury uh, because we see it so often in the form of concussion. You could have bleeding and suddenly someone dies. But the cardiac reason for someone dying on the field is someone who's born with a heart defect, a Marfan's disease, or something of that nature. But in this case... You take a perfectly healthy athlete, and suddenly their heart stops. They're essentially dead. Now, we see this often in young athletes, particularly young boys, who don't have much development of their chest, right? Because this is about protecting the heart. That's why our rib cage is there. That's why those muscles are there, so that you can protect your heart. And what has to happen for this commotio cordis is the heart has to be struck just at a particular time while their heart cycle is ongoing. To explain further, the way your heart beats, the synchronization of the various chambers, the ventricles and the atria, is because there's an electronic network in the heart. So there are different signals given to different parts of the heart of when to contract. The heart has to be struck just at a particular moment for it to stop, essentially paralyze and disrupt this entire process. And when it happens, the heart just suddenly stops. The way to get it back is to quickly start CPR and defibrillate. The so-called AED or the automatic external defibrillator, which is used. Something that's part of all CPR. And it's really the crucial time that you have to administer that because now you have no circulation going to the brain. And you have to reinstitute that. And fortunately, that was the case here. That's why we now require that at all sporting events, there be availability of an AED. And that people should be trained, all of us should be trained on how to use an AED. You see them at airports all the time. You'll see them at casinos all the time. They're all over the place now. They're not very expensive. They run about $1,000. But again, important to have because that will save a life, as it did with Mr. Hamlin. So again, there are people out there saying, well, let's change the game. This is not a function of the game of football. Right? And, and, and I, I'm not a big defender of violent sports, but this has nothing to do with the violence of the sport because we usually see this in Little League baseball. That is where most of these cases are recorded where either a ball comes off the bat and strikes the pitcher directly in the chest or even the catcher getting hit in the chest. That's why they wear chest protection. That's why catchers wear that. That's why goalies wear chest protection. That's why even in professional bull riding, a sport I talk about quite a bit here, they wear chest protection. Right? They they wear kind of a hard protector. So from that standpoint, that's what really needs to be done. It's It's not changing the game. It's not even changing the padding that every player wears because it's so rare. The real point is, are we prepared to deal with the problem when it arises? And at least we were in that, at that level of professional football. Will we be able to handle that at lower levels, at Little League and other events? That's the real question that we need to monitor. A drug we talked about on this program, Lakanumab. Lakanumab, as you'll recall, is a drug that uh, recently got approved this week uh, by uh, the uh, Food and Drug Administration. For the treatment of early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and basically this is a drug where we finally the peer-reviewed study appeared this week in the New England Journal of Medicine where we looked at an intravenous infusion in people and it was an 18-month study it was multiple uh, centers and it was a phase three trial and Just to review that a little bit, phase one, when we test the drug, phase one is animal studies and evaluate the safety and ability to generate a response. Phase two tests hundreds of people to get the right dose. And phase three is really thousands of people looking at their safety and effectiveness. Now, in this case, the phase three trial was in people over the age of 50, so age 50 to 90 who had mild symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And there were uh, roughly 1,795 people total uh, were put into the study. Half were given placebo, half were given the drug. The people administering the drug were blinded, so it's doubly blinded. The patient and the doctor don't know who's getting the medication and who's getting placebo. And they monitored cognitive change. So some basic IQ tests that were done at the baseline and after the study, in addition to PET scans. So the drug itself attacks amyloid deposition. It's an antibody that attacks amyloid, which is a protein that accumulates in the brain and we think is the primary cause of Alzheimer's disease. The results show that with respect to cognitive change it slowed the rate of decline by 27 percent the PET scans the positron emission tomography scans done that look at amyloid also showed a significant reduction in the amount of amyloid so it's promising it's approved and relatively safe I use the word relatively because there were side effects to the medication. And the adverse effects in the study group were about 21% versus approximately 9% in those who got placebo. The complications were brain hemorrhaging and brain swelling. The problem with that is not so much the, the risk amount, but we don't know how much was from the drug and How much is from the disease process? Because we know that people with Alzheimer's disease are more susceptible to brain hemorrhage. Nevertheless, people interviewed with mild early Alzheimer's disease all said they would take the chance. They would take the chance with the medication. And I think that's a a really overpowering reason for us to go forward with more studies uh, for this drug. We're going to take a short break. If you wish to reach out to me, uh, you get to me at info at alessimd.com if you have questions about today's show or any questions that come in your mind regarding uh, medical care. And uh, we will take a short break now. And they're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Charles Cavo from Pounds Transformation. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about nutrition we're talking about metabolic health, how to manage your weight, and your overall nutritional health. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Who can take, Who can take We're back you, on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And uh, during our break, I got a good question from Jeff came up. Uh, reached out to me at info at com regarding the last story, the last discussion about lakanumab, and the question was, what does it cost, and will Medicare pay for it? And we do not have answers to that. Uh, So, so far, it's only been used in trials, so during a trial, people don't pay for the medication, but uh, that's a really good question as to whether or not it's going to be covered by Medicare and that will keep everybody informed as we get uh, that information. Also, since we last spoke a few minutes ago, we've had uh, two commercials regarding weight loss uh, from centers, uh, from Trinity and from uh, our folks at Hartford HealthCare. But the question becomes, is it really about diet and weight loss and weight loss surgery, or is it really about metabolism and metabolic medicine? And that's why our guest, Uh, is Dr. Charles Cavo. Dr. Cavo is the co-founder and chief medical officer for Pounds Transformation. He's a medical doctor, and I don't know, for lack of a better term, he's been on a mission of keeping people in good health and establishing uh, good health. Uh, He was with us in June of 2021, so I thought it was worth checking in. Charlie, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, thank you very much for having me.
0: Carla, let's talk Let's start with what is really metabolic medicine? What does it mean to be metabolically well?
1: So I think you could probably get a whole lot of answers to that question, but for us, because we really focus on metabolic health, um, we're looking at making people healthier in their um, blood pressure, lipid profile, glucose management, Uh, behavioral health, so metabolically, uh, the appearance of labs oftentimes are within reference ranges, but just barely, and a lot of people just accept that, and they'll just be told, let's watch this. We don't really accept that. We don't watch it. We manage it, and we manage it aggressively, because if you just watch abnormal labs, they're just going to get more and more abnormal if you don't take action, and so we um, Really try to influence people's diets and uh, lifestyle in order to improve their metabolic health.
0: So, when we think about let, let me when we think about metabolism, and especially one of the biggest problems in America today is diabetes, uh, impaired glucose tolerance. Um, people, you know, I see people all the time who come in with uh, hemoglobin A1C and tell me, oh, I'm under great control, my uh, A1C is 7 or 8, which we know is significantly elevated. And So when we talk about this, maybe it's worth talking a little bit about insulin resistance and how how this comes about.
1: Sure. So that is a really great question. I'm glad that you asked it because I don't think people um, know enough about insulin and they know too much about diabetes and blood sugar. But you can't get to having diabetes or pre-diabetes abnormal blood sugars without first having insulin resistance. And it's a much more complicated, um, it's a much more complicated diagnosis than diabetes, which, which people can just say, oh, my blood sugar is elevated. Whereas insulin is a hormone. And insulin responds to your blood sugar. When your blood sugar is elevated, your insulin has to go up in order to bring your blood sugar down. And when people are insulin resistant, they've developed, they're they're producing more insulin than they need to for a given carbohydrate or glucose intake, sugar intake. So some people can eat an entire pizza and not gain a pound and it's probably because they secrete a normal amount of insulin to handle the load of carbohydrates that they'll get from that meal, whereas other people will just look at pizza and they'll gain 10 pounds without even taking a bite, and that just has to do with the amount of insulin that they're secreting, because insulin is a really powerful pro-growth fat-gaining hormone, and so if you're secreting a lot of insulin, you're going to grow something, and in most conditions, and most people these days, it's going to be growing fat cells. So insulin resistance, I think of it more of a carbohydrate threshold that gets exceeded, and then you produce too much insulin, and it just doesn't reset soon enough, and then you feel the effects of it, which is weight gain. How much of this is genetics? I, I, so How much of this is, 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 is genetics? Did you say genetics?
0: Yeah. How much of it is genetics? And a lot of patients say, well, you know, my," and we see it all the time, you know, my parents had it and and they resign themselves to the fact that this is the way I'm going to be. But, I mean, can those genetics be overcome to some extent?
1: They they absolutely can be overcome. Um, And I think that while there's a genetic component and because parents had it, then it stands to reason a person might have it too. But I think a lot of that, maybe confounded by, they're probably eating in a similar sort of pattern as their parents were. And so it's more diet mediated. And it's not to say there's not a genetic component, because there definitely is. Just like with smoking, there's a genetic component for lung cancer. So you could have a family of, say, you know, five people, four of whom get lung cancer, who all smokes and one person doesn't get lung cancer who didn't smoke. And maybe they just didn't turn the gene on that would have caused the cancer. So with insulin resistance and having higher levels of insulin based on a given meal, you could be wired or programmed genetically to do that, but you also could opt for a different kind of diet or way of eating that would reduce that sort of epigene from turning itself on and and producing a lot of insulin so I think that there is definitely a modifiable risk factor here if people had the right kind of education and approach to it
0: many times and I think I know the answer to this but from your standpoint but so many times people say they have pre-diabetes so, and I know you already mentioned watching it and things such as that, but how would you define pre-diabetes or borderline diabetes?
1: So, pre-diabetes is usually determined by a person's A1C being 5.7 or higher. And an A1C is, is a, um, it's a lab test where a physician gets a sort of snapshot of how well a blood sugar is controlled over three months. And so if the A1C is elevated, then we can, we, we can. it stands to reason that the blood sugar over the course of the three months was probably elevated uh, higher than it should be. So you're metabolically unhealthy. However, there are different reasons why that A1C could be falsely elevated. So you have to be cautious with just buying into an A1C being elevated, but nevertheless, A1C of 5.7 or higher is one marker, and the other one is a fasting blood sugar in the morning higher than 100. Clinicians will use that also <clears throat> as a means to um, establish prediabetes. Again, I think you have to be cautious with that one value as well, just because some people wake up first thing in the morning and their blood sugar can be mildly elevated anyways, and they can be completely metabolically healthy with regards to how they dispose of glucose. But that combination of an elevated fasting glucose and elevated insulin or elevated uh, A1C and also some disruptions in a person's lipid panel when you're looking at triglycerides and HDL. If you have that combination or that sequence of um, abnormalities in blood values, then you're most likely a pre-diabetic and certainly an insulin-resistant person. And if you just are told to watch it and will just continue to watch it, or if you're just told to exercise more and lose some weight, I, I think that that's, it's, it's a very soft sort of way of treating something that could eventually become a massive health condition for you. And it's a great time to jump on board a pre-diabetic and make them metabolically healthy rather than just watching it.
0: Up. We hear a lot about medication now for people with obesity and and basically uh, the semaglutides, uh, things like Ozempic uh, that uh, that people are using. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the use of those medications and how they help? Uh, How does that help stem the tide here in someone who may be pre-diabetic or obese?
1: Sure. So, yeah, the... um... The medications that have just recently come out and down the pipeline that are treating obesity uh, and helping with blood sugar control are pretty exciting in the space of obesity medicine or weight loss medications. And I'm sure a lot of people have probably heard of them. Uh, Ozempic is a medication. They're all part of this class GLP-1 agonist. Um, another one would be um, Wagovi. Wagovi. Uh, So those two medications specifically are in one class, Ozempic and Wagovi, and the difference between the two is Wagovi was designed really for uh, obesity, and Ozempic was really designed for uh, diabetes. However, um, they both have the same mechanism of action. They really curb somebody's appetite if you're taking them. They're injectable, so you take an injection once a week, um, and... The way in which they work is they reduce the appetite through their um, effects on what's called the GLP-1 receptor, which is a it's a hormone receptor that reduces the, the transit of food through the intestines, so everything kind of slows down so people feel more filled up. And it also, those medications also cross the blood-brain barrier and affect the appetite center. So there's a reduction of appetite uh, on both of those levels, which is interesting. Uh, Wagovi seems to do a better job at weight loss than Ozentic does, just because it's a higher dose of the same medicine. I think it does cross the blood-brain barrier a little a little bit better um, from studies that are out there. But they've been very effective with regards to uh, weight loss. The hard thing about them these days is getting your hands on them because the well, pharmacies gonna... are oftentimes out of that medication. And the other issue is insurances are sometimes um, not exactly uh, covering them as well as they they should. Um, But if you're fortunate enough to find a pharmacy who has those medications and you have coverage, they're, they're excellent. We use them quite frequently in patients. The one thing I will say about them that I see a lot in our office is some people get the medication or start taking the medication, but they don't have appropriate follow-up um, and you can't just uh, expect to have weight loss and efficacy from that medication without having some follow-up with people who can help you out with uh, diet and behavioral management also. I guess the other thing maybe to talk about with regards to those medications side effects, um, the side effects that we see most often with, uh, with these med- medications is nausea and My patients describe a feeling of um, sometimes it's it's sort of like a seasickness, and so that nausea really seems to decrease a person's appetite, and their intake goes down, and that's um, a a calorie deficit sort of way of losing weight, and they certainly work. Um, Um, Yeah. Uh, You can't take those medications if you've had a history of pancreatitis, and you can't take those medications if you've had personal history of thyroid cancer, a family history of thyroid cancer, but again, we really like these new medications that are out, and they they do a good job at at treating obesity as well as helping people with blood sugar management.
0: Well, you answered my next question about the availability of these drugs, because I hear this time and again, and also uh, I think very few insurances pay for it uh, when it's for obesity as opposed for, for diabetes. Um, but I want to move on a little bit because you mentioned, you know, part of this scenario of someone presenting with uh, obesity, uh, I- insulin resistance, and also lipids. Can you talk a little bit, give us a few minutes about lipids and what everyone needs to know about them?
1: Yeah. Um, so, lipids or cho- cholesterol basically is something that. Obviously, it gets screened for annually by um, primary care physicians, and people know an awful lot about cholesterol, and they get very much worried about their total cholesterol um, being elevated above 200, and again, they are threatened with starting medications if they don't lose weight or change their diet. And there's a couple of things I guess we can briefly talk about, and if there's anything Specific. Feel free to cut me off and I'll move on, but the total total cholesterol is interesting when it comes to risk factors for cardiovascular disease, but it's not really where the, the story or the cause of heart disease is. The cause is really looking at the LDL cholesterol and the non-HDL cholesterol, and having those elevated um, should give a person pause and want to know whether or not they can reduce those values through dietary changes. And in some cases, you can, if it happens to be associated with insulin resistance, and you treat the insulin resistance to bring those values down. But sometimes they're not really modifiable, even with the best diet and adherence to the best diet to bring those down and, and, and exercise. And I think that really frustrates people. When I see them, they they get referred over to our office to help with cholesterol management because we do a a lot with metabolic health, obviously a lot with weight loss too. But when a person gets referred over for cholesterol management because they don't want to go on a cholesterol-lowering medication and they're already eating a, a diet that has very limited sugars and processed foods, there's not a lot more that you can change. And in those scenarios, um the I, I think that probably the, the best strategy is to uh take a lower dose uh cholesterol lower medicine, follow the trend, and if you need to go up on that medication or use a different one, you, you probably should. Um and, and I just think that unfortunately there's a lot of um misconceptions out there that it's simply a diet alone that can correct the cholesterol, because it's not. However, I, I'm i very much um, certain that in, in the majority of the circumstances, it's dietary changes alone that can control things like diabetes and pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Um, but that, I, I guess I'll be quiet now and see if I didn't answer well, some no, of your questions.
0: Actually, uh, th- I have a couple of questions. One is, we always hear about medication, but... Uh, patients come to me and say, well, I uh, drink apple cider vinegar or use uh, red yeast rice. Uh, Do those things help? Those things
1: do not help. Okay. Um, I don't discourage people from trying them, but if you're using them and you're following the trend of your cholesterol and you continue to notice, uh, very minimal changes in your LDL, uh, you, you can take inventory that, the uh, apple sure. cider vinegar and, the uh, red, uh, yeast or, it's, it's not working. Um, sure. does yeah. Does fish oil, does fish oil work? So fish oil is one of the more studied supplements that's out there and a very high dose of fish oil. Not that, not the kind of doses that you are recommended to take with the over the counter one. Um, will reduce your triglycerides. So there's um, pharmacy-grade fish oil called Vasepa that you can take, and that will bring down triglycerides, um, which is beneficial. Uh, and with regard to just the supplement of fish oil and taking one a day or two a day, depending on, you know, what how, what, what milligram dose you're taking, uh, it's, it's not something that's necessarily going to greatly change your cholesterol panel, it could have some impact on it. There's some other benefits to fish oil, though, with regards to just a a healthy fat that's essential for us to take and uh, helps with things like with our eyes and our neurologic function. And usually it's more helpful than unhelpful to take. So yeah, I, I use that quite frequently in our practice.
0: Charlie, in closing, um, what could someone expect so that they come to Pounds Transformation? First of all, how do they contact you? And if you could give us like a one-minute summary of what's the process?
1: Sure. Uh, there's an office number that they can call. Uh, a lot of our patients are referred to our practice through their uh, physicians. And there's also a website, poundstransformation.com. Um, and then lastly, there's an open Facebook um, page that is pretty active called pounds transformation on on the Facebook um, but in any case, a person coming into the practice who hasn't been referred in uh, by their by their physician will get a pounds blood panel um, so we will be looking at laboratory values like insulin, cholesterol panels uh, and some others. Um, we will take The first appointment is a 60-minute appointment with one of the providers, doctors, APRNs, PAs, that kind of thing, where we're getting a history and a sense of what's been going on and what's been causing the abnormal weight gain, Um, because 99% of the time, it's not simply overeating and under-exercising, which got the person to the place that they are. And so making an accurate diagnosis through history taking is important. And then the follow-up after that 60-minute appointment is with dietitians in the weeks um, after. So our dietitians will see the patients weekly uh, for the next three to four visits before we bring the patients back to see the providers where we go over the labs and any kind of medication changes. We try to de-prescribe medicines more than prescribe medicines, but... Um, that's how we follow up our patients. It's not, a, it's not a program where people graduate after 13 or 14 weeks. Uh, just like a, a medical uh, practice, a, per- a person who has a problem like abnormal weight gain uh, remains in our practice indefinitely for as long as they want to. So we have patients that have been our patients for, you know, eight years now. Um, obviously, their appointments get much more spread out, but we like to keep touch of our patients and make sure that the problems that we're managing um, are well-controlled.
0: Charlie, thank you for your time today, and thanks for everything you do for our community.
1: Yeah, hey, thanks a lot for inviting me. Again, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Many thanks to our studio producer. Kevin Kors has been on the board for us today. Jeff Chandler's in charge of Sales and Marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast and download it at odyssey.com. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.